Thank you to our children for reading. That was wonderful. Uh, if you haven't noticed, I've got something going on in this area. But uh, I should be good, but be patient with me. When I turned 18, I went skydiving. It was a particularly appealing idea to my 18-year-old mind. I went to an airfield, I signed a waiver, I put on a harness, I connected it to a stranger who had another harness, with, but he had a parachute on his back, and I jumped out of a perfectly good airplane, and I survived. There are a bunch of things that had to go right for me to live to tell that story. The equipment couldn't fail. The plane couldn't crash, and of course, the chute had to open. And yet, I didn't give it a second thought, and everything went as I had hoped. I put my faith in every detail of the procedure and trusted that everything would be okay, even though I could not see or inspect every detail that it, that it entailed. Is that crazy? For the record, it's safer than driving, I checked. Today, the author of Hebrews calls a community of Christians to faith, and he describes what faith does. And he encourages them to put their trust well beyond the things that they can see, to trust in a God they can't see for unseen realities. Is he crazy? We're going to go through a little bit of the book of Hebrews the next few weeks. And the book of Hebrews is a rich book with very detailed theology, particularly concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And we don't know who wrote it or for sure to whom it was written, but it's usually recognized to be written to followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. And there appears to have been a tension for the audience between obeying Jesus and obeying the Jewish law, particularly as it pertained to the sacrificial system, which was a common tension, especially immediately following the resurrection, because the believing community was mostly Jewish. And so the author directly confronts the issue by explaining the depth of who Jesus is, the profoundness of who Jesus is. In the opening verses, he shows Jesus' divinity as God's Son, putting him on the same level as God, saying that the universe was made through him. Even more so, that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. And he goes further applying psalms that were written to God, applying them to Jesus. The letter goes to great lengths to show that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is superior to angels, he's superior to the prophets, and he is in fact divine, worthy to be worshipped as God. He says that God says concerning the Son, in chapter 1, verse 8, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter 
of your kingdom. This is a description, this is a partial description of what we Christians recognize to be the Trinity. We believe that we serve a triune God, one God who exists in three persons, as the Bible names them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a whole other sermon series. But the foundation is important for the book of Hebrews, because the author uses this foundation to show that Jesus is our perfect high priest. While human priests have had to offer sacrifices throughout the years, Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice once for all. The author says in 727, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrifices for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Further, he he then establishes that the earthly sacrificial system, particularly at, at the temple, was only meant to foreshadow and reflect the heavenly reality that Jesus himself accomplished through his death. The new covenant established by Jesus makes the old one obsolete. And so followers of Jesus are no longer bound by the laws concerning sacrifice and ritual purity. And because of these truths concerning Christ, the author calls the audience to cling to the hope they have because of these truths. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And he goes on to recognize the persecution that, and the difficulties that this community has had to deal with and their perseverance through it because they believe in an eternal reward. And he encourages them to continue to persevere. The chapter before our passage, chapter 10, ends with him encouraging them, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And then he launches off of this into our passage to explain faith and give examples of what it, what it does as he calls the community to remain faithful. And he gives us a partial but helpful definition of faith in verse 1 of chapter 11 when he says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, there's a lot of discussion about how to translate this verse because the author is using some key words in unique ways. And rather than take you through the discussion, it's best to recognize what the author's trying to accomplish. What he's essentially doing is rooting faith in reality. Even though it's an unseen reality, essentially, faith is not subjective emotion. It's based on something. He's saying faith is a confidence in the reality on which it's based. In fact, the word that our 
our translation translates as confidence, it's more commonly used to refer to essence or reality. He's saying it's a faith rooted in that reality that we hope for, even though we can't see it. It's also worth recognizing, I think helpful, to recognize what faith is not, particularly in light of this description of faith that the author gives us. First of all, faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not blind faith. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about closing our eyes and plugging our ears to the outside world and really trying hard to believe something. He's rooting it in reality. Because it's rooted in reality, it's informed by experience. The proclamation of the gospel is rooted in encounters with the risen Jesus Christ. For the believing community, they cannot see heaven. But they have had encounters with the risen Lord. And so they can trust what he says all the more. Statements like when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me even will live even though they die. Faith also does not mean certainty. Faith is not knowing all the answers. We can't. If you get to a point in your faith walk where you know all the answers, let me suggest to you that you are not paying attention. And in that place, you will stunt your growth. I've heard it described even to the degree of saying that certainty is actually the enemy of faith because it doesn't allow room for growth. And I think anyone honest before God has to recognize that there is a mystery to God. We don't know everything about God. You can have faith and still have doubts. As the Psalms testify, as we see in various people's lives in Scripture, what faith does is it determines what we do with our questions, what we do with our doubts. We take them to God. And we in faith that He will meet us in those places. However, verse 1 is translated. And even if we don't understand all the nuance, throughout the rest of the chapter, our author gives examples of faith by showing what faith does. And if I could sum up the faith described as it's illustrated throughout this chapter, the underlying principle behind all that follows is trust. Faith trusts. It's a giving over of one's life to something. And just to be clear, everybody has faith in something. Everybody bets their life on something. The question everyone has to answer is what and why? What are we basing our lives on and why? If you don't like the idea of jumping out of a plane, let me reverse it. If you have flown anywhere, if you have boarded a plane, you have demonstrated a faith similar to what our author is describing. It's 
There's a lot of things you have to trust in. You have to trust that that plane is in flying condition, that the mechanics have done their job. You have to trust that the pilots know what they're doing, even though you yourself have not interviewed them. If you're going through clouds especially, you have to trust instruments in the cockpit that you can't even see. It's not blind, though. Flying has a very good track record. It is also safer than driving. It's not blind faith, even though it's not complete knowledge. And yet, you can tell me that you trust all of those things, but it's just words until you board the plane. I could tell you I trusted the parachute on my instructor's back, but it's just words until I jump. That's the kind of faith illustrated by the characters in this chapter. Betting one's life on God. Because of the encounters they have had, they have found God trustworthy and so are trusting him further with what they cannot see. Of course, in order to trust, faith has to recognize God. It says in verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because who Anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Verse 3 says that by faith we understand that God made the universe and not by what we see. It's by faith. We were not there. But if you ask me, when I look at the universe, I see the fingerprints of a creator. And I think that faith is very well placed. The starting point that's the starting point. Recognizing creator God is the starting point for relationship with him. And faith that recognizes God, faith that recognizes who God is, should result in recognizing who we are before God. Giving us a proper heart posture before God, a humility and dependence on our creator. He gives us two examples. Abel and Enoch. Abel, the victim of the first murder in Genesis, who was killed by his brother Cain because God looked on Abel's offering with favor and not Cain's. We're not told explicitly why, but when God says to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? It suggests that Abel had the right heart before God and Cain did not, simply put. Even though they, bro they both brought an offering to him, our actions don't mean a lot if our hearts aren't in the right place. And then there's the mysterious example of Enoch. It says in Genesis 5.24 that Enoch walked faithfully with God and then he was no more because God took him away. He was taken to be with God without dying because his faith pleased God. On display in Enoch and Abel is a faith that believes that God, as the author puts it, rewards those who seek him. They see God as worth seeking. And next we're shown that faith acts. Faith does something. Often through obedience. The examples given by the author are person after person from Scripture who acted in faith, usually by obeying God's commands because they found God trustworthy. They believed that God was trustworthy. We have Noah who built the ark because God told him the flood was coming. 
We have Abraham, who left his homeland to the place where God called them. And as the chapter goes on, he mentions Moses, who left his position in Egyptian royalty to lead Israel through the desert to the promised land. We have the observance, he, he mentions the examples of observing Passover and crossing the sea, all happening by faith. Faith allows Israel victory once they enter the promised land because they do what God says. He even mentions Rahab, a foreigner and a prostitute in Canaan who protects Israel's spies at risk to her and her family's safety because of faith. And not because of an explicit command. Because she saw what God was doing in Israel and found the God of Israel trustworthy. And the list goes on as he mentions, he, t- he mentions various judges. He touches on stories and traditions from the prophets. He makes the case that because of all they did and suffered, they were commended for their faith. And the obedience and trust, their actions, they flow out of a, p- a place of looking forward. Faith looks forward. That's why he's describing, that's why he, he talks about realities that we cannot yet see. Faith trusts in a way that looks forward. As Sarah looked forward to the promise of God that she would bear a child, even though she was beyond childbearing years. As Joseph looked forward to his, to his descendants inhabiting the promised land, being freed from Egypt, even though he, he himself wouldn't see it. And in fact, the ultimate reality that they looked toward was not of this world, as the author describes it. He says in verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And chapter ends saying, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us they would be made perfect. If this life leaves you longing for something more, If you want something more than you can find in this life, you are in very good company. The good news is God has something more. The author describes it here. The reality of eternal life for those who would receive Jesus Christ. And it's then when our faith will be made perfect. Faith trusts in a way that shows itself in action. And it's informed by previous encounters with God. And yet it looks forward to God's unseen promise of eternal life with himself. Faith says, God, because I believe you, because I have found you trustworthy, I will trust you with what's ahead, the things that I can't even see even the reality beyond my death. And the ultimate hope that was accomplished through Jesus, which the author so eloquently 
describes through the first 10 chapters. A cleansing of our sins, allowing us to receive God's mercy and grace and the hope of eternal life. That's the hope that we continually keep in mind as we follow Jesus in faith. The question for every follower of Jesus is where is God calling us to jump? What is he calling us to do by faith? Is he asking us to leave what's comfortable to serve him in a new way? Is he asking us to reach out to somebody that we don't want to associate with in faith that he will work in that relationship? Is he calling us to give beyond what we're comfortable with in faith that he will provide? Whatever he is calling us to jump into, we can have faith that our Savior who was faithful to the point of death, and our God who was faithful to raise him from the dead, will be faithful to reward those who seek him beyond anything this life can offer or anything that we can imagine. Let's continue worshiping our faithful God.